The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, we're coming to you from Brunswick, Georgia, where jury selection has begun in the killing of Ahmad Arbery murder trial. What will it take to find 12 impartial people who will determine the fate of Travis and Greg McMichael and their co-defendant, William Roddy Bryan? Court TV's Julia Janae is on the site tracking the progress and joins me to share what she's learned. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for downloading the Court TV podcast and sharing it with friends and, and listening. And this week, we are beginning a huge trial on Court TV. And every trial begins with jury selection. That's how it starts. You cannot try a case without a jury unless it's a bench trial, but this is not a bench trial. This is a jury trial. And I'm talking about the case involving the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery. This happened in southeast Georgia, Glen County, Georgia, down in Brunswick. Three men in two pickup trucks were following him through a neighborhood, and eventually uh, there was a confrontation, and Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed. Uh, the three defendants are Travis McMichael, the man who was in the physical confrontation with Ahmad Arbery, the man who was holding the gun, the man who shot the gun that killed uh, Ahmad. Then there's his father who was standing in the back of the pickup with a phone and a gun. And then there was a third man, Roddy Bryan, who was in a second pickup truck, and he was recording everything on his cell phone. That's the story. You're very familiar with it. Uh, the three men who are charged uh, are all white. Ahmad Arbery uh, is black and was black. And, and that's a big part of this case as well, which is uh, including the video. You watch the video. And as soon as this video was released, um, everyone was talking about the story. I mean, we were talking about it at Court TV before the video came out. Um, but it wasn't clear, you know, the information seeping out of Southeast Georgia wasn't clear about exactly what happened. And then we saw the video and we saw exactly what happened. So these three men are now charged with felony murder in Georgia and they're facing a life in prison. And joining me on the podcast as we talk about, and we have to begin with, with this jury selection process, which is so important. I mean, I talk to lawyers every day and I would say probably three or four out of five Criminal attorneys, whether you're a prosecutor or defense attorney, say this is the most important part of the trial. It absolutely is. These are the people who are going to decide everything. They're going to decide what happened and what it means. So this process is extremely important. And Julia Janae, Court TV legal correspondent, who is on the ground down in Brunswick, Georgia, joins us. Julia, great to uh, have you on the podcast. Hey, Vinny. Thanks for having me on. So let's walk through this, this process. And this is what I tell people when it comes to jury selection. Um, the way it's done varies greatly from courtroom to courtroom, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, judge to judge. It's, it's A lot of people think like there's a way, okay, this is how you do jury selection. And when I first became a lawyer, that's what I thought it was. I thought there was like a standard way in every trial, this is how you pick a jury. But what I've learned uh, both as a, a, a lawyer and now working at Court TV for all these years is you travel around the country, you travel to different courtrooms, um, everybody does it differently. I mean, I worked in one courthouse as a prosecutor and different judges did it differently. So uh, walk us through how they are deciding who will decide this case 
involving the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. I mean, it varies case to case. This is some never before seen stuff for this courthouse. This is starting with a thousand people in Glen County who are being summoned to jury duty. And that's something the clerk says is not typical. They don't often have a case where they have to summon that many people. One thousand people. One. How many people? I mean, aren't, there's like eighty five thousand people in the entire county, right? Exactly. So one in eighty five, one in eighty four. And that's, you know, including kids who can't serve people over 70 who don't have to. So you've, you're talking about a lot of the adult population in Glen County. And the process is something that this court has never seen before. They have an offsite location that they don't want publicized as far as where the first 600 of those 1,000 came on Monday. And then out of those 600, they then take 20, pools of 20, and they talk to a pool of 20 every day. They are considering a morning and an afternoon 20, but on Monday, they only got through the first 12 because after that process, when they whittle it down to 20, they're then taking each of those 20 one by one after they've answered general questions, raised their hands, yes or no on certain things. They then talk to them by themselves, and that can take 20, 30, 40 minutes per person to figure out all the information they want from those. The goal of this is 12 jurors with four alternates. And because of the way the strikes are and how many strikes each side has, the magic number they want to qualify is 64. And it's not an easy process. They have not uh, had a lot of people to qualify at this point in the process. Okay. So you, you, you get You start with 600 people in some secret remote location, and then 20 of them at a time are shuttled over to the courthouse. Okay, so this first process, this general questioning of these 20, what are they trying to figure out uh, about these people when they're, and these are questions that they're answering in front of one another, correct? This is the one where the media is present and they don't say much. They just raise their hands, but the attorneys want to know about hardships. They want to know if you have any trips that are planned, any issues with childcare, if you have trouble with the English language, if you're over 70 and don't have to serve, if you are law enforcement, they have these questions that people are raising their hands for, but also general questions about, have you heard about this case? Do you already have a negative opinion of the defendants? Uh, Where do you stand on certain issues? It's just a yes or no, raise your hand or don't raise your hand. Then it gets more secret because- Let's let's stop there for a second because I I see that first part with the the group of 20 answering those questions. That's where you find the people that don't want to serve on a jury. Right. Because they're like, all right, here's my opportunity. Can I be fair? No, I can't be fair. Uh, do you have a hardship? Oh, yeah, I have a hardship. And and that's where I think you can whittle out those people. And I remember when I was practicing, there were judges that would really zero in on those folks that didn't want to serve on the jury and they would do everything they could to keep them on the jury. Uh, it was kind of like a personal vendetta by the judges. But in a case like this, obviously, you, you don't necessarily want to do that. But out of those 20, how many are are having trouble or how many of them does it seem are are just a rough percentage you know know a lot about the case and don't think that they can be fair oh 80% believe that they know about the case no no a good bit about the case it's been very hard for this court to find anyone who says they haven't been keeping up with the case or they're not really aware of it, maybe just heard it on the news. We're not hearing that. Uh, So the majority know about the case. Roughly half already have or admit to a negative opinion 
on the case. So that's what we're, as far as the When you say negative, negative towards the defendants, like negative presuming that the they're guilty. Exactly. Uh, not a fixed opinion for everyone. So that's the magic word the court has to whittle through, but they are doing that in the next phase. Okay. So that's, and, and but these are questions again, and, and this is the interesting part of the jury selection process in a case like this, that is, is such a, um, such a public case with obvious issues involving um, what happened here. You know, do you want to, if you want to get off the jury, right, you can say you have a fixed opinion and that uh, that's probably your ticket uh, off of the jury. But even I see a level of peer pressure. Like when you're answering questions in front of others, you're revealing to other people's complete strangers, something about yourself. And I, I, I never really liked that process. I like the individual voir dire because at least you get a better sense of where people stand. So of those 20, do they eliminate some of them right, right off the bat based upon those answers? They do. Uh, they do wait until after that's over. They don't point them out and say, you're out of here. But after the general questioning is done, to your point, I thought it may be uncomfortable for some of these jurors when they're answering the question about, do you have a felony where your rights haven't been restored and you haven't been able to vote. Even just raising your hand to that question in a room of 20 can be embarrassing for some people, but that is part of the general questioning. And there was a person who said they did have a a conviction on their record. And so they were not able to serve. Okay. So now let's go to the individual uh, room. Now they, you make it through this first little round of general questioning, and now it's time for the individual voir dire, or how do you say it, Julia? Voir dire? <laughs> depends on the person. It's, it depends. Some people say voir dire down in Texas. But um, so in this individual questioning, this is where things get a lot more specific. And um, who is hearing these answers? And and what what is the actual, what is, what's the process look like? Who's in the room? And, and what are the types of questions? So they do move to another courtroom and the other jurors sit in an assembly room and they wait around for their name or number in this case to be called. But this has been something that the defense attorneys in particular have wanted to keep the public and the media out of. They want the answers in this phase where these jurors are being asked these detailed questions where they can give full explanations to why they raise their hands for certain questions. Um, They wanted to keep the media out. The judge ruled trying to balance the protection of the jury selection process and access by the public to the point that there are pool reporters who are able to be inside and they can share that information, but there's no audio and no video as far as the sound of what's going on inside this individual questioning. Now, this is interesting because when I, when I tried cases, obviously as a young prosecutor, I wasn't trying cases of this magnitude. I was I was I was prosecuting run of the mill drug cases, uh, assault cases, things like that. And what's interesting is the same issue would pop up because courtrooms are full with people. And when you're picking a jury that, you know, there might be something that's a little bit private in nature. And, And the judge would do it all on the record. But the judge would call people to sidebar. Like this is something that's very common in a courtroom. Like if you're talking about very personal so at the sidebar, you would have the attorneys, the, the court reporter, the stenographer would be there taking everything down because it's on the record. The judge is there. The lawyers are there and the, the defendants can be there as well. And I'm wondering why they just don't do it that way. If they're that concerned about the nature of this questioning, um, have everybody in there. But OK, this is private. We go to sidebar. That way no one has to speak out loud. 
I had this conversation with one of the defense attorneys for Greg McMichael, Franklin and Laura Hogue, husband and wife defense attorney team. And they really said to me that it's because they believe all of the questions in that individual portion, they need the potential jurors to be as honest as possible because they're going to be talking about issues that involve gun ownership, race, the Black Lives Matter movement, how they feel about uh, someone who's committed a crime and their reaction to that what they have honestly said to other people about this case in their private lives. So because most of the questions in individual voir dire, they envisioned being something secret rather than having everything at sidebar or off the record, they pushed for no media inside for that individual and were successful in keeping out any of the audio and video. You know, it's interesting. If I was a judge, though, if I want real honesty, I do it at sidebar because it's much more intimate it's it's you're, you're you're basically kind of talking like this and you're not talking really loudly. No one else in the courtroom can hear you except the people directly involved in the case. And uh, it, it's fascinating because some of these questions that they're asking people, it, it gets into your life. It's it, I mean, you're really trying to the lawyers obviously want to know as much as possible. And the judge wants to make sure you can be fair and impartial. But I mean, you're really it, it's difficult enough to 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 go down and serve on a jury, just the time commitment and everything else. Then there's the stress of deciding someone's life in a murder case. And then on top of it, they're prying into your own life. And, and to me, I think, and, and again, I'm all for openness and, and all of that, but I think for our system, for a juror to be 1000% honest, the more we can protect them at sidebar when it comes to very personal issues, not the general stuff, but the very personal issues. Uh, I'm surprised more judges don't do it, but they don't. And and so how would you gauge the, the pace of how we're doing so far uh, in this first week of jury selection? Uh, are, are things going quickly or slowly? You said 64 is the magic number, right? We need 64 qualified people before we can actually do the the formal process of the selection and elimination of people. Right. 64, according to the defense, 68, according to prosecutors, there's a lot of math involved as far as the strikes and who's going to share strikes, but around 60 to 70 is what they're looking for. Uh, As far as the pace, it's like a a train. It starts to chug out of the station. It seemed like it has started slow, but is going to pick up. They did not clear as many potential jurors as they wanted on day one. They had eight that they really don't know when they're going to call the rest back because they only got through 12. So we'll see if it picks up. But right now it's seeming to chug a little slow, but it's also working out the kinks of the process, which is really new for a lot of people. Yeah. A thousand people to get 12 to make a decision. You've got four alternates, but 12 to make the decision. And the the significant thing here is, is that this is being tried in the jurisdiction where it happened. Uh, it's a national uh, trial. I call this a national trial because people know about it around the country, but obviously it impacts the people of Glynn County, Georgia the most. All right. When we come back, let's talk about what type of jurors each side may be looking for and how they're dealing with probably the biggest issue um, in this case, which always becomes a little dicey when it comes to jury selection. And that is the R word race. We'll be right back.
Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So they are in the midst of jury selection to find 12 people to determine whether or not Ahmad Arbery was murdered by three men in two pickup trucks who were tracking him through the neighborhood as he was jogging. He was shot and killed, shot three times. Uh, prosecutors early on in the uh, preliminary hearing uh, stated that the fatal shot was actually the first shot that came from the gun that Travis McMichael was holding. His father in the back of the pickup truck also uh, had a gun, did not fire it, was also on the phone with police. And then a third man, Roddy Bryan, who was in a second pickup truck uh, with a camera, also chasing and following Ahmad Arbery, but also recording what happened to him that day. Julie Janae, Court TV legal correspondent, is in uh, Brunswick, Georgia, and we're talking about this jury selection process. Um, so this is this is a general question, and and I've I've thrown it out a couple times, and I've heard different sides of this case, prosecution and defense, answer it differently at different times. Is this case about race? It, is race part of this of this case? Right, and I've asked this question directly to uh, uh, Roddy Bryan's attorney. He says, "No, it's not." Um, what are prosecutors? Are prosecutors going to argue that this was a racially motivated case? Is it part of why all of this happened to Ahmaud Arbery? Are we going to hear those arguments from prosecutors? Do we expect to, Julia? Biddy, from my vantage point, it is a card that they have in their back pocket that they can use, but we don't know for sure if they plan to use it uh, or if they will use it in their opening statements. They brought it up during the pretrial motions. They pushed really hard to try and get in some of the racially charged comments that these defendants made in previous times. But I can tell you in this jury selection process, the prosecutor stood in front of the judge and objected to any racially or racial type questions coming before these potential jurors because she said, those don't have the issue of race doesn't have anything to do with this incident. So I was surprised to hear her say that because I did expect that it would be the prosecution who brings out race. And if race does come out during the trial, then it should be fair game for these potential jurors to be vetted on that. But yes, the prosecution would be in the best position to bring race into the trial portion. The defense says it's not an issue and they don't plan to bring it up unless the prosecution does first. Okay, so are, is the jury being asked any questions that um, are in any way connected to issues involving race or racism? They are. They are being asked about uh, whether or not they feel certain emblems equal a person's racist nature or uh, particularly in this case, the Confederate flag is something that is displayed on the front of Travis McMichael's truck. We don't know yet if that's going to be something that will come into evidence because the judge hasn't ruled on whether it will be excluded or admitted. But these potential jurors are asked, how do you feel about this emblem? Do you think that it's a racist symbol? So I feel like in that regard, this jury is already being primed for a case that has race at the center of it, but we know that the commentary surrounding this case is that 
the defendants would not have chosen to run after and ultimately use that deadly force against Arbery had he not been a black man. Okay, so let's break this down. Let's start with the license plate first. And and, and I've seen it because it's it's in the body cam footage of of the interview of one of the defendants. I think it's Greg McMichael's being interviewed and he's standing in front of the pickup truck. And in the back, you can see this front license plate that has the old Georgia state flag on it. It's, it's kind of divided in half. The left side of it is the state seal of Georgia. The right side is the Confederate flag. And I think up until like 2001 or so, that was the official state flag of the state of Georgia. But obviously in 2021, um, Things are looked at differently by the general population. And, and you know, some people looked at it the same way all the way through. Uh, but obviously the state of Georgia looks at it differently because they changed their state flag. It's no longer their, their state flag. Um, so the question of whether or not that license plate becomes evidence hasn't been decided yet. And, and to me, that's a dangerous place for prosecutors to try to bring that into evidence because that would become ultimately if there's a conviction, an issue on appeal, right? Uh, to me, that would be an, a potential issue. It might not be a winning issue, uh, but it is one. So if I was looking at this as a prosecutor, I'm wondering, do, do I do, I do a, an aggressive prosecution and not worry about the appeal? Or do I do a more conservative prosecution because I believe in the strength of the other evidence that, that exists? And we've seen it done both ways at Court TV. And uh, we really don't know which way the prosecution is going to go yet, do we? We don't. And again, I think it's a card that they are going to keep in their back pocket. And they may be looking at how this jury pans out. What is the feel they get from the jury that they ultimately seat in this case? Because what we know is it might be a photograph of that vehicle that they want to show that will really highlight that flag which was a Georgia flag from 1956 to 2001. Uh, so it wasn't always the Georgia flag, but it was for many years. And I believe Travis McMichael had just put it on his truck. He didn't have it on his truck from back when it was actually the state flag. So depending on who is on this jury, they actually didn't want to ask the question of how you feel about the Confederate flag. It's the defense that wanted to ask that question. So that to me is pretty interesting that they didn't want to bring it up in jury selection, but yet they may want to bring it up during the trial. Yeah, this is, you know, and, and to me, that's a dangerous place for the defense um, asking this question because the jury, well, why, why are you asking me that question? I mean, the logical conclusion that anyone on that jury applying common sense would be, oh, his client must <laughs> must have the Confederate flag somewhere. I mean, somewhere in this case. Right? So why are you asking me that? It must be because you're, you know, that's why I, it's very dangerous. But on the other hand, depending upon how the prospective juror answers, you'll definitely get more information about that juror, um, presuming they're telling the truth in their answer. And uh, that's a tightrope. That is a tightrope for the for the defense to really go through all of that. Now, the one thing we should tell uh, folks listening who aren't familiar, you know, we started talking about the jury selection process. Once they get the 64, then it's time for each side to exercise their strikes or their peremptory challenges where they can strike jurors for any reason or no reason at all. And in this case, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the prosecution gets 12 and each of the defendants gets eight. So the defense in total will have 24 and the prosecution in total will have 12. That's exactly right. And that was after the judge agreed to give the defense more strikes. 
So that uh, was a win for them as far as this process. And then they all get three strikes apiece for alternates. But there's a question of whether or not the defense is going to share their strikes for alternates, which is why there's this question of whether the magic number is 64 qualified jurors or 68. Gotcha. Okay. So let's, let, let's talk about that concept of, of strikes. This is where lawyers just can have jurors dismissed. They don't give a reason. They don't have to give a reason. They just say, we don't want number 32. We don't want number 64. We don't want number 75. Um, but the obvious issue in this case is you've got a victim who is one color and you've got three defendants who are another color. You're going to have potential jurors who will be one color or the other color or perhaps a third or fourth color as well. Um, but to me, this could be a very huge issue if, in fact, one side believes the other side is eliminating people based upon the color of their skin, because that's the one thing you're not allowed to do. While you don't have to give an, a, a reason why you're dismissing someone, but if the other side believes that you're dismissing them based on the color of their skin, uh, then they can object and the judge has to has to make a decision there. It could trigger a Batson challenge. And we see that often in cases where especially if one side, let's say in this case, the defense has used their strikes on three different African-American jurors. You can almost expect the prosecution is going to raise it with the judge. It won't be in front of the jury or the potential jurors, but they will likely exercise a Batson challenge saying that you are dismissing them based on race. They could be fair and impartial. Here are the reasons why. And they may compare it to another juror who's of a different color who they've allowed in who has a similar problem that perhaps the other jurors who have been eliminated have. Uh, so I anticipate that that's going to be the case in this. I, I, I can't imagine us getting through this and there not being one. Right. And it could go the other way as well. I mean, you could you could accuse prosecutors of eliminating all the white jurors that, that, that come on. And, and I've seen that happen as well. You know, I was challenged once as a prosecutor. I, I was hit with the Batson challenge. And it was a case where the defendant... Um, I don't even think the defendant was black. I think the defendant may have been Hispanic or something. And, and um, I dismissed one of the um, African-American jurors and they hit me with a Batson challenge. And, and I said, and they said, he's, uh, he's engaging in a pattern of discrimination, a pattern. I said, your honor, it was one. It, how was, how was one a pattern? Like I, I what are they, I, I ultimately won on the, on the challenge, but I was, I was shocked And what they were doing is they're just trying to intimidate a young prosecutor, make sure you don't eliminate any other African-Americans who get on this jury. But it, you know, it, it had nothing to do with that. I think they had known someone who was in the same shoes as the defendant, you know, had been charged uh, by police. And that was my reasoning. But anyway, um, so this will be an issue. Now, what's, give us an idea of what the jury pool that we've seen so far kind of looks like racially. It's diverse. Uh, it has not been more of one race than the other as far as white versus black here in Glen County, it's about 70, 65 to 70 percent white and about 24, 26 percent black. And then remaining divided between Hispanic and multiracial people. Um, we're seeing a similar look, but I think we're seeing more African-Americans in the jury pool of who we've seen so far as compared to the actual population here. Uh, but, you know, in Brunswick, the actual city, uh, the center of this county, it is more African-American than it is um, white. 
So it's a different dynamic between the county and the city. Right. And and the jury pool is pulled from the entire county, not just from, from the city. For sure. So oh, th- that's interesting, the, the way that's playing. And, and we'll see, because that becomes... Once we get to 64, that's when the game is on, right? That's when the two sides are going to uh, uh, get in strategic mode and, and try to figure out how they get the 12 uh, that they believe will, will help their case the most. The judge trying to keep everybody fair and impartial and, and balanced and whatnot and make sure no one's eliminating anyone because of skin color. But at the end of the day, I mean, the, the truth of the matter, and I say this all the time, and, and my guests um, will rarely say it because they're still actually practicing law, but lawyers do this every day. They judge people by the color of their skin. They eliminate jurors because of the color of their skin. They absolutely do, whether it's white or black. It, it doesn't matter, or Asian. It all depends upon what the parties are like. And ultimately, I think either side is more comfortable with a jury that looks like the side they're representing, whether it's the, you know, the prosecution really representing the interests of the... They represent the people of the state, but they really are there uh, standing in the shoes of the victim. And then you've got... Uh, the defense representing the the three accused killers. So um, no one will say that, though. I think it depends on the case. It depends on the case, though. If you're representing an African-American police officer, then your attorneys may be looking at a different kind of jury. Uh, They may not want people who necessarily look like them based on race, but are looking at who supports what causes. I think for sure race sometimes plays into what attorneys think, oh, we can figure something about you based on your race. But they ask a lot of questions. I know, but you know what? I guarantee you, if if some of the, and then I'd have to, I'm, I'm going to ask some of the um, attorneys I have on who've represented police officers, you know, how they handle that issue. Uh, have to be an off the record conversation because they're not going to go on the record saying what they do when it comes not to the all. race of the, <laughs> of the prospective jurors. Um, but I still think that to me that is like the it's the it's the one reason why you can't eliminate a jury a juror, but it's the number one reason that lawyers actually do. I mean, that's just what I've gathered from from years of covering this stuff, off-the-record conversations, and actually being in the prosecutor's office and hearing things and talking to defense attorneys and hearing things. It's just it's just the way they do it. It's, it's the way it's done. And I don't, it, it's obviously not legal, but it, 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 they get away with it. And they have to come up with what they, they call a race-neutral reason why you eliminated that juror. And I guess before the trial, they're going to, as they're seeing all these jurors, they're coming up with these reasons and making little notes about it. So they so they have backup when they do want to eliminate them. But so what's your, what's your guess here on how long it's going to take this jury selection process? My guess is two weeks. Uh, we know the court wanted to do it between one to two. One of the defense attorneys says it will probably take longer than two weeks, but I think they're going to get into a better rhythm of moving along with people and the questions and the way they're being asked and how to bring in the pools. And the judge has even been admonishing them on tightening up these questions and moving things along. So I think once it becomes apparent that things are dragging, uh, the speed will pick up. And, and what's interesting, and I say this a lot too, is that the jury selection process, the speed of it is really controlled by the judge because the judge is, is laying down the rules. You know, it's not like, oh, jury selection, it's a tough case. This, is, this should take three weeks to pick a jury. No, I mean, if the judge wants to, the judge could get it done in three days. But it depends upon the process and the procedure and the way the questions are asked, what types of questions are asked, how many are permitted, because the judge is in charge. And, you know, some judges do it this way. Others will will rock it through jury selection. So I've seen it both ways. We shall um, be waiting, though, uh, Julie Janae, because once this case starts, wow, this is a... 
this is going to be fascinating, especially with the three defendants, three sets of defense attorneys and all the um, evidence that may or may not come in and how the jury interprets that video. And there are also some videos we haven't seen yet, right? That's what we're hearing is that there's more uh, videos that Roddy Bryan may have recorded that have not become public. Multiple recordings. So we have the 37 seconds that went viral that so many of us have seen, but defense attorneys say he recorded more than just that 37 seconds on his cell phone of the incident. So there is more to this chase that the public has not seen. All right, and, Julie. Oh, go ahead. You uh, get the final word. Kevin Goff, Roddy Bryan's attorney, comes back on and talks to you. I know he's talked to you several times. Uh, ask him why he hasn't agreed to pick the first 12. He's asking questions in jury selection. He said famously early on in this case, he would take the first 12 who came in. I haven't seen that yet. I'm waiting for it. I do remember that. He's like, we're ready. Let's do it tomorrow. Unbelievable. Julie Janae uh, in Brunswick, Georgia. She'll be there throughout Court TV's coverage of this trial. Uh, make sure you watch. Julia, thanks so much. I know you got to get back to the courtroom, courthouse. Uh, when we come back here on the podcast, I'm going to give you my take on, on what, and I gave you sort of a preview here, but what's really happening in, in this jury selection process, what the goals are of each side and how there's not a ton of honesty in the process. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. So the jury selection process, and you hear this phrase all the time, it's like the magical words. We just want a fair and impartial jury. That's all we want. Well, there's only one person in the courtroom who wants that. And that's the judge, okay? Because that's the judge's job. That's what he or she has to do. They've got to find 12 people who, based upon their answers, based upon who they are, what they've said, what you know about them, can sit there and be fair and impartial and base their verdict solely on the evidence presented inside the courtroom. Give the defendant the presumption of innocence that our Constitution provides leave the burden of proof on prosecutors to prove the case to the legal standard of beyond any and all reasonable doubt. That's what the judge wants. And lawyers say they want that all the time, but they are absolutely lying when they say that. Okay. Whether you're a prosecutor or a defense attorney, neither one of you want a fair and impartial jury. That's not what you're looking for in the jury selection process. You are looking for someone who is going to be more receptive to your case, your arguments. You want someone who you believe thinks and sees the world the way that your client sees the world. And that's the truth. Prosecutors are looking for someone who's really conservative. I mean, when I was in the prosecutor's office, they would say the guy you want is Joe Lunchbox, right? Back when I was prosecuting, it was Joe Lunchbox. The guy goes to work, works hard, and hates crime. And, 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 you know, anyone who's, uh, you know, you're accused, you're guilty. You're, if you wouldn't be accused if you didn't do it. That's who prosecutors wanted. Joe Lunchbox, super conservative. They didn't want someone that was going to be fair and impartial. And on the defense, you don't want someone who's going to be fair and impartial. You want someone who questions the government all the time, doesn't trust the government, doesn't trust cops, doesn't trust law enforcement. 
And that's the, the general uh, view in all these cases. Then you take those set of facts and you apply it to what, what the case is actually about. So in the case of the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery, first and foremost, prosecutors want jurors who are black, period. The defense wants jurors who are white, period. Okay, that's, that's the first thing. They can't say that. They will never say that. But that's what they're thinking. And that's what they're doing. And that's a calculation they're doing all the time. Absolutely. And, and it's because of what I told Julia. Lawyers, when they're trying cases, um, you know, and, there's, and there are very good jury consultants who go much deeper into all of it. But at its surface, at its surface, you want, as a lawyer, you always want someone who looks like the party you are representing. That's just the fact. And that's what they're looking for. And they will eliminate people of the opposing race based upon their skin color, but they'll always have another reason in their pocket. Because they know if they get challenged, they'll have to give that reason. And I'm just giving you the truth. Okay? It may sound offensive. It might sound like it's outrageous, but it's the, but it's the truth of what happens day in and day out. I've heard those conversations. They, they do. They happen. They take place. And it's human nature. And in cases that aren't super high profile like this, in cases where there aren't jury consultants who are doing the deep dive, you know, your run-of-the-mill case, this is done every day in courtrooms across the country. Now, let's take it one step further because there's going to be a deeper dive here. Um, and, and this is a a case that does not really involve law enforcement. Think about it. This is not, this is not the, the death of George Floyd, where it's a police officer on trial. These two defendants on trial are not cops. One is, was former member of law enforcement, worked for the uh, DA's office as an investigator, but no one was on the job. No one was a cop. No one was working. No one's wearing a badge. So... Um, how does that issue play into all of this? You know, you know, people that feel one way or another about law enforcement, how would they feel about this case? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't think law enforcement generally likes vigilantes or, or accused vigilantes or alleged vigilantes. So I don't know how sympathetic law enforcement would be with people taking the law into their own hands. Generally, they don't like that. So I don't know how that issue necessarily plays. Like I said, every case is a little different. In most criminal cases, the, the law enforcement issue is a big, big issue. And it's like, does someone hate law enforcement? Are they pro-law enforcement? Here, you know, there's no real law enforcement involved in what happened to Ahmaud Arbery. Law enforcement is involved absolutely afterwards, right? And, and the way they questioned these three defendants, the way they didn't arrest them, um, that, but those law enforcement people aren't on trial. And what happened after the shooting of Ahmad Arbery, really for the purposes of this trial, has little or no value. For the purposes of the story and the issue, it's huge. But inside the courtroom, in terms of evidence, once that third shot is fired, um, you know, whatever happens afterwards, aside from the statements of the defendants, is relatively irrelevant to what happened. You know, it's everything in the buildup to it. So 
the the role of law enforcement in this case, I think, is is minimal. Is minimal. The case is going to be about the videos that exist. The case is going to be about the statements that have been made by the defendants. Um, and the case will be about whatever the defense brings up and, and attempts to bring up. But it's not going to be about, you know, is this is this a pro-law enforcement, anti-law enforcement? Is this a blue lives matter? No, it's none of that. This is much different than the case against Derek Chauvin, the man convicted of murdering George Floyd. Much different. These guys are not cops. So as this jury selection process continues and, and goes through, keep an eye open for that because once we get to the point where the jury strikes come in and each side is eliminating jurors, the other side is going to pay close attention to who they're eliminating and, and what type of people they're eliminating. And from what Julia is telling me, um, you've got a mixture down there in terms of race. It looks like right now probably about 60, 40 is, is, is the way it's going. And that, that may very well be the way the last 64 line up, 60, 40. And I've got to think with those numbers, this final jury will be a, a jury of, of people of different races. So it, it's not going to be 12 white men and women or 12 black men and women uh, judging this case. I just don't think that's going to happen. But each side is going to try to get their edge, try to get their majority. Um, but we'll see. And it does go deeper than this. It does go a lot deeper, uh, the jury selection process. But on its surface, that is issue number one, always has been, and and unfortunately always will be. Because that's the way um, lawyers in our system look at these issues. And you're not supposed to. It's the one reason you can't eliminate someone, but it's the first reason that most lawyers actually do, but will never admit to. All right, folks, uh, make sure you tune into Court TV for our gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage of this case. It is our cameras inside the courtroom uh, bringing you all the testimony, all the evidence, all the arguments. You will see and hear it all. Uh, check the show notes here. We've got links to an incredible uh, documentary as well that we've done at Court TV that kind of sets up this whole trial for you. If you don't know the entire backstory, you will after you watch that documentary. And make sure you watch my show every night from 8 to 11. 11 p.m. where I'll bring you the biggest moments of the day each and every day and then really analyze and, and, and cut them apart with uh, experts, with um, incredible attorneys and attorneys who have practiced with and against many of the people involved in this case. That's it for this week. Oh, by the way, if you want to find Court TV, you can go on the website and there's a, a there's a tab you can click and show you how to watch Court TV, how to find us. But also, if you have a digital antenna, please rescan it so you can find our signal. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening. I will speak with you next week. Have a great day. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.